You are listening to the Missio Tempe podcast. We are a church of missional communities, living as a family of missionary servants for the good of our city. For more information about our church, visit missiotempe.com. We hope this teaching encourages and challenges you to faithfully take up your role in the Missio Day. If you weren't with us last week, we jumped back into the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we've been doing a year-long uh, sermon series through the Gospel of Mark, picking it up, putting it down. And if you weren't with us last week, I'm going to give you a little recap because I'm going to build today off what happened last week. So last week, my hope and my heart was that the month of August would be a time where we, uh, in, in a sense, continue and cultivate our attentiveness to Jesus. Because what we attend to then shapes the people we become Our attention then shapes our affections, and our affection shapes our will and our choices, and our choices make us the people we become. And so last week we looked at this story, this impossible story of this man, this father, this desperate father had a son who was demon-possessed, and he was miraculously healed. And my hope and challenge for us was to focus on those three words, if you can, that Jesus says to the man. Some of you even thought I cussed last week. So I want to make this clear up front. It came out funny, but I'm going to tell you right now, it was not A-S-S, it was A-S-K-E-D, all right? So I just want to put that out there, all right? So I got some weird faces in the middle, and then nobody talked to me about it. That's kind of scary, all right? Let's be honest. Someone should have said, hey, dude, watch yourself. We got kids in here. So anyways, we looked at this story last week, and the vision is, with the if you can question, is to recover a sense of hope out of our own callousness and despair and cynicism that so easily pervades us. And so today we're going to look into Mark chapter 10 because I want to transition from this idea of recovering hope, which I think is the foundation of many ways of being attentive to Jesus, to now in a sense what Jesus demands of us. But not a demand that comes out of anger or frustration, but out of a deep love. So you have a Bible. I want you to open it to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at the story that's maybe familiar to some of you, of the rich young ruler. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. I'm going to break up this passage into three scenes. We're going to read one couple verses at a time, and then we'll pause, and then we'll pick up it again. But Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. All right, let's start in 17. We're going to read just the first two verses. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him, fell on his knees before him. And he said, good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. All right, let's pause there. This is the setting of the, of the story we're going to look at today. I don't know about you, but over the last couple of years, I've had this really common experience in almost every sphere of human society. It's the experience of suspicion. Like anything from going to a doctor, to a mechanic, to watching a piece of news or reading something, a sense of suspicion. Like in some ways, there's a hidden agenda to what this person is trying to get from me. They're not actually telling me the truth. I mean, I have a really trusted mechanic, I'll say that. We've had some mechanical challenges the last couple of years with our cars. But if you've ever been to a mechanic and they say, oh yeah, you need to get five things replaced, it's going to cost you $1,500. Don't you kind of go, are they really telling me the truth? Can I really trust them? What's their ulterior motive in some way? Maybe that's just me. Maybe you're just very hopeful and, and assume the best of people and situations. 
But I think when we look at this passage, it can be easy to read the first couple of verses and think, this man's intentions and motivations are completely pure. He's a, he's a dignified man that's running. That's not good. Like, you don't do that in that culture. He comes and bows his knees before Jesus. Okay, that seems like uh, meekness and humility. He's honest. But then the question, he says, good teacher. In this context, in this cultural context, in some ways he's playing the game that he knows very well with people that are important in society. In a sense, he's trying to butter Jesus up here to get a favorable answer back. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And I love Jesus' response because he's basically like, hey, cut the crap. What's your agenda? Like, what's your real agenda here? Like, do you actually want to know the answer to that question? There's this quote I have used a lot if you've been, spent time with me. And so uh, I do that sometimes where I start using the same quote to, in every conversation for about six months and then I move on to something else. So I apologize if you're like, oh, I've seen this a million times. But the guy who wrote the Book of Common Prayer, Thomas Cranmer, he says this. He says, what the heart wants, the will chooses, the mind justifies. What the heart wants, the will chooses, the mind justifies. I think this is really pertinent to our conversation here. We talk about motivations up front as this man comes to Jesus because we so easily deceive ourselves. This is what it's basically saying. Hey, the heart wants something. Then you choose to step into that and then you justify on the back end why you chose to do that, good or bad. The heart is what's driving often our decisions. And then once we make the decision, we say, oh, well, let me, let me justify why I'm making the decisions I am. I just want to, the first kind of implication of the story is, in a sense, what motivations are we bringing to Jesus this fall? What kind of maybe mixed motives? We often maybe even use Jesus as a means to some other end. I don't think this man, maybe there's, there's definitely a sense where he's coming uh, curious and wanting to actually belong to the kingdom and inherit it. But he's also coming with some really mixed motivations here. And motivations can be tricky, Right? It's hard for us to unearth our own motivations of our own hearts because we can deceive ourselves. We can justify in our minds the decisions and the loves that we have. My invitation for us this fall is could we be more curious of our motivations when we come to Jesus? And what are ways like this young ruler where you might be attempting to manipulate Jesus to get what you really desire or to justify your choices? That's a question for all of us as we start kind of a new semester. It's a, it's a new season. In many ways, we think of this year starting now. Like, it may take a heart check of our motivations because Jesus won't be used as a means to an end. He stops this young ruler in his tracks. He's not going to be used as a means to an end. What about our own motivations? How might we unearth that and see what's there that might be mixed? Let's continue reading. Scene, chapter, scene 2. Let's read verses 19 through 27. 19 through 27. It says this, Jesus' response. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He's just giving like commandments 6 through 10 right there basically. Or 5 through 10. Verse 20, teacher, he declared, all these I've kept since I was a boy. And notice how powerful this verse is, verse 21. It's, the most, it's unique in Mark and no other Gospels. It says, Jesus looked at him 
and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go and sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. They're amazed because in their culture, wealth was a sign of God's blessing almost all of the time. They didn't see it as a mixed, uh, a mixed bag of experiences. They're, they're dumbfounded. But Jesus said again, children, this is a term of endearment, he's talking to his disciples. How hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. The first thing we got we to do here with this section or this scene is we often have a dissonance with the rich young ruler. We don't identify as the rich young ruler. You don't think prob- probably, you don't think of yourself as rich. I don't. That's like, that's for somebody else. This is, this is a good story for somebody else that has a lot of wealth and resources. But the dissonance we have should actually be resonance. Because even at the poverty line in the United States, we are the wealthiest people that have ever walked the planet. Nobody's even close. And I get things cost more and there's different dynamics with that. But we are beyond wealthy. We have so many resources at our disposal. We should have resonance and identify with this young ruler more than we don't have resonance with him. But notice here, as we identify with the rich young ruler and maybe even feel confronted by Jesus if we enter into the story as the young ruler, notice when he's about to give a really severe command, it has that powerful line, Jesus looked at him with love. With love. You could argue the most powerful human experience that any of us have ever had is sharing eye contact with another human being. From the moment a child is born, they have eyesight just enough from feeding to see their mother's face. That's it. And it's that eye contact, back and forth, that being able to be seen, that actually is one of the most formative, attachment-related things that a child needs to be a healthy adult one day. And here's my question for you this morning, just to sit in silence for the next maybe minute or, or so. What is the gaze of Jesus? How do you imagine him gazing at you? If you're really honest, like right now, not, not with all your stuff together and you figured everything out and you're doing really well, but like this rich young ruler who's come to try to, in a sense, test Jesus maybe in some way, who's coming with a mixed bag of motives, how does Jesus gaze at you? Just for a moment, think about his face. You can close your eyes if you need, but I'm just going to give a minute. How does Jesus actually gaze at you? Like, what do you actually see? He's, he's a real human being. You're going to actually see him face to face one day. Like, what is his gaze right now at you? What, what are you experiencing? Just sit with that for a moment. Some of our most painful memories is the, is the face of someone else in disappointment or disgust. And yet, In this story and for you, Jesus does not look at you with disgust or disappointment. He looks on you with love before he asks you to do anything.
Do you believe that? Do you believe that this fall before we get to the activity of being God's people and the challenges that will come? Do you actually believe that Jesus' first gaze at you and his consistent gaze is one of love? And it's out of love, as Romans says, God's kindness that leads us to change, to repentance. The love of God undergirds all calls of obedience. This is why after he says he looked at him with love, he said, you lack one thing. Now he's going to challenge him. You lack one thing. So a couple weeks ago, uh, in the middle of July, we were planning on going to California for a couple of weeks to visit Keaton's family and be at the beach. And the day before, I had this feeling that our car, our van, was not doing too well. And I don't know if you've ever been there. And I was like, maybe we should just get it checked out of the mechanic real quick before we go on this trip across the desert in 110 degrees. So we bring it over to the mechanic, and I'm thinking, ah, it's going to be fine. Like, maybe they'll say a few minor things. And he calls me like a couple hours later, and he says, you know, looked at your car, and, and frankly, I wouldn't drive it across the desert. Like, I candidly, for a mechanic to say that, I, I don't think his motives were mixed. I actually really trust this guy. He says, candidly, I wouldn't drive it. Like, you have severe problems. It's going to cost you thousands of dollars to fix. And this is on Friday, and we're leaving the next day. It's like, oh, boy. All right, well, we got to find a rental car. And so uh, my mom and I were looking all over for cars and finally found a car in North Scottsdale that we could take for the, our trip. So I drive up there, get the car, and we spend our trip. But overhanging the whole trip is like, hey, when we come back, we're going to have to get a new vehicle, most likely. Because my parents taught me, you don't put more money into a car that's broken and it's not worth very much. You buy something new. Not new as a new car, used car. Dave Ramsey was was very key in that. It's a joke, but kind of serious. So we get back, and we uh, look for a car. We find a wonderful car. We have a Honda Odyssey. It's out there. I can almost see it through this window right now. It's beautiful. A used car, 80,000 miles, drives great. We did have to replace the brakes the day after we bought it. But other than that, everything is good, it seems. But I went to go fill the, get the cashier's check to pay the guy for his car. Uh, as soon as I saw that money drain out of my account, I had, I, I had a lot of anxiety about it. Like, oh my gosh, how much money did we just spend on a car? And that anxiety then exposes, began to expose things. It exposed how I see wealth and resources as security or a sense of control or comfort that now as I see my account dwindle in size overnight, wow, what, how am I going to be taken care of? Am I going to have, are we going to have enough? You know what, and then you're tempted in that moment you're, because of your comfort and security, you know what, we need, to, we need to change other things about our life. Maybe we should be less generous. Maybe we should cut back on our giving or tithing. Maybe we should make some other drastic decisions because I don't know if God's going to take care of us. That's all implicit. That's maybe not even having the conversation in my head, but you feel it, right? Oh, I've lost a sense of comfort, control, success, approval, whatever it is, those idols we talk so much about. They're revealed. They're exposed. Uh, I don't know if you guys have been uh, watching the news or, or reading the news or whatever news app you find, and I think it's probably primarily on one news angle than another because it plays to a political angle. But there's been a lot of stories about Lake Mead. You guys familiar with this, where it's draining, and they're finding all this crazy stuff at the bottom of the, the lake, like abandoned ships, other darker things like bodies or human remains. 
but the lake's just draining, and the water the water's going down and down, but it's revealing what's underneath. And I think the challenge for us here is what's happening with wealth and resources that Jesus is questioning. He's not saying that wealth and resources are bad or that you can't have wealth or resources. He's saying that wealth and resources can be an obstacle to your discipleship to Jesus. And when they're taken away or they're threatened, what's underneath is revealed and comes to the surface. What was underneath of what I didn't realize I had comfort and security in was revealed as soon as I signed that check to buy a new car, used car. <laughs> I think we've, we've, done this, we've done the story a disservice where we're quick to dismiss the story as like, Jesus isn't saying that uh, we should never, or Jesus isn't saying we shouldn't have wealth or resources like, he's just saying our priorities should be straight, which is true. Or we like completely say like, hey, you know, the call today is everyone right now, I want you to get out your phone, I want you to go on your bank app, and I want you to drain your whole account and give to the church or give to the poor down the, the homeless guy down the street. Like give it all away, sell it all. That's what Jesus is calling. There's maybe something in the middle here of what's happening. Because I think what Jesus is trying to say to us is wealth and resources can be an obstacle. And as Americans, they are. Because we have so much wealth and so much resources become an obstacle often to our discipleship. They don't have to be, but they often do. And the clearest way to showcase that is when they're, when they're threatened. What is shown? What is revealed in our hearts? I want to say this, and I, I've had to learn this, I think, the hard way over the last five to ten years. Jesus will often go after the one thing you have still not surrendered to him. Have you experienced that? He will go right after the thing that is preventing you and is an obstacle to your discipleship to Jesus because he loves you too much to let you stay where you are. It is an act of God's kindness that he reveals those things and says, hey, this is actually a barrier between me and you. You need to do something with this. I'm inviting you to do something with this, whether it's wealth or resources or something else completely and entirely. Here's my question for you, just to sit in the silence of this room. I feel like this is a vulnerable sermon today, so we're not doing a lot of conversation back and forth. What are you holding on to tightly this fall? What are you holding on to tightly this fall that Jesus is inviting you to surrender to him? What are you holding on that is preventing you from experiencing the king and the kingdom? Maybe it's wealth and resources. Maybe it's something else. But what are you holding on to so tightly that if it was threatened the idols underneath, like Lake Mead, would be revealed and showcased. All right, let's move to scene three. The last couple of verses. Scene three, verses 28 through 31. So they've had this amazing encounter. They're dumbfounded that Jesus would question the wealth of this man as an obstacle to discipleship and not just blessing and then, of course, who has to speak up of the disciples, right? Like, if you're going to use the Enneagram language, I haven't used that in a long time, so forgive me if you're offended or you're like, this is great, I haven't heard it for a long time. Like, Peter's probably like the eight or the person who's like quick to like, let's jump right into battle, let's jump into the conflict. He st it says, Peter spoke up and said, we have left everything to follow you. Interestingly, I just thought about the sound. He's also trying to justify himself like the rich young ruler, right? We have left everything to follow you. And then notice Jesus' response. 
Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields. I love how Mark adds this in here. Along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. I want to focus on that little phrase, we have left everything to follow you. Have we left everything to follow Jesus? Doesn't often mean physical or that you have to literally leave behind uh, some of your relationships, although maybe that sometimes that actually is the case. That is true, these disciples were radically reoriented towards Jesus to come and follow him. But have you, in a sense, left things behind to follow Jesus? Or are you trying to, in a sense, carry it along with you? I wonder, I wonder if one of the challenges with our experience of being a church family is how much our biological or family of origin then shapes our experience of the family of God. And we carry those experiences, both beautiful and brokenness, into, that, into the experience of the family of God. What about for you? Is there something about the system and family that you grew up in that you want to bring with you in a really good way? But there are also things that you need to leave behind that actually threaten your discipleship. Jesus become an obstacle to your discipleship to Jesus. Pete Scazzaro, who some of you are familiar with, he says this. You may have Jesus in your heart, but Grandpa is in your bones. He's kind of playing on the Jesus in your heart thing. It's, but that's so true. You have grandpa in your bones, but you have Jesus in your heart. Your family shapes so radically in both beautiful ways and in challenging ways your experience of the family of God. I wonder if the invitation for some of us with Jesus saying, we have left everything to follow you is an invitation to evaluate what we've brought with us for the journey. What are things we need to literally just, we need to lay down or set aside? Or, like the rich young ruler, do we walk away sad? And it says he had great wealth and resources. He couldn't abandon that. He walked away. There's a warning here for us. And we don't like warnings often in our culture. Warnings are forgotten. But there's a warning for us. Jesus is inviting us to total allegiance. And sometimes that means laying things down. Or we can walk away sad. And it's a decision moment Jesus is inviting us into. Here's what I want to do before I call us to the communion table with a lot of challenging words I've given you today from this passage because I think it's a really challenging passage that we've often watered down. I'd love you to turn some people around you. As you've been sitting in the story for the last 20 minutes, 25 minutes, what is, what is Jesus stirring in your heart right now that you could share with somebody else? If you feel, hey, it's too vulnerable to share, I need to find a trusted friend in the room or share this week, that's okay. You can sit just in your chair and sit there in silence. But what is he revealing to you? And I want to make this note before I bring that in because the promise here often feels like something that's not realized in our actual experience of the church. That if we were to truly leave everything behind, we wouldn't be met with mothers and brothers and sisters and fathers and houses and goods and resources We'd say, oh, no, I actually don't think that's true. Or sometimes our experiences don't match that. 
And I want to just, I want to name that because then often we have this vision hope that that will become and yet our expectations or our dreams get hit with a different reality and we have to wrestle with that. And I don't think I have a clear answer for what to do with that other than just to name that that is real as we jump into a church family. Even a church family like ours where we do a lot of life on life, there can still be the experience of feeling lonely or outside or not experiencing the mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, fields and houses that is promised here, both in this present age and in the age to come. So let's turn to some people around you. I'd love for you just to share what's been stirred in you over the last 25 minutes, and then I'm going to invite us to the communion table. I'm going to call you back. We're going to have the kids joining us here in a moment as a family to take from the Lord's table, to receive from the Lord's table. I've been thinking about the ritual or the liturgy of coming to take from this table, receive from the table, as it relates to this sermon. I want you to think of as you get out of your chair in just a moment and you come to the table, this is you bidding the call of Jesus to say, come follow me. And you're literally leaving behind your chair and your seat to come to the table to find your nourishment, your security, your comfort, your approval, your success. All of those things you're found are here with Jesus' body and blood. But the good news of the story isn't just that you get to leave behind those things or you leave behind those things and you're met here with Jesus, but the promise is for a family to then come alongside you. And to be really honest, we often see communion and take communion very individually. We give you the elements, you go back to your chair or by yourself or with one other person and you take them together with that person or by yourself. But today, as we've done often in the past, I'd like to take it all together because the good news of the gospel is not only that this is a moment where we're reminded of our reconciliation with God, but also with neighbor. The gospel is both for and with God, but also for and with neighbor. We're going to be going into Ephesians in a couple of weeks, and I've just been trying to give you, uh, in some ways, to whet your appetite for it by reading different passages. But I want to read this passage from Ephesians 2, 14 through 22, and then I'm going to invite you to the table as a liturgy, as a ritual, to take up the call that's given here to the rich young ruler, to respond differently than he did, to not walk away sad, but to see the loving gaze of Jesus and come forward and receive from him, no matter the cost because the promise is real and true, both in this present age and the age to come. It says this, Ephesians, 4, Ephesians 2, 14 through 22, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose, Jesus' purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to their death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You're no longer outside. But you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of his household, his family built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus being the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too 
are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. And as we welcome the kids in, kids, you guys are welcome to come join us because we're going to be taking communion together. Would you find your parents that are here in the room? And I'm going to invite you to the table. Chris Hamilton and I will be serving you today Jesus' body and blood. Would you stand with me? I'm going to, we're going to recite the mystery of our faith. It's going to be on your screen. Let's say it together. Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Come and receive. And hold the elements once you receive.